Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Water of the Rings. This is session number 232, and I am excited to get back here. I'm finally returning after Mythmoot 9, uh, which was just an awesome time. So good to see so many people. I always am just very, very excited uh, to reconnect with old friends. It was uh, just a lovely, lovely time at Mythmoot again this year, remotely and on site. Uh, great to see old friends and meet new friends, uh, and uh, we're uh, uh, we're we're getting ready. And no, uh, Drasnik, uh, returning to Moria is the title for today. We're not skipping. <laughs> we're just remember we were in the middle of where Gimli was speaking his piece, and uh, he was talking about Moria. So we're gonna actually get into the names of Moria and stuff today. Um, so uh, so there we all there we all are. Um, but anyway. Uh, great time at Mythmoot this year. A couple announcements that I wanted to make, uh, one of which is a reminder about an upcoming moot. Um, we have a uh, our first regional moot of the uh, of the new year, uh, the new moot year here coming up. We have Buckeye Moot, our first ever moot in Ohio. Very excited about that. That's going to be in, in Cincinnati or near Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, uh, now, I wanted to emphasize this because um, we're, there's, there's a slightly early deadline for registration for this. Uh, so the, 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 the moot itself is going to be on the 30th of July. Um, however, we can only take on-site registrations up through the 16th of July. So that's just like a week and a half from now, essentially. And I know uh, the traditional patterns is that a lot of people who are planning to come sign up in those last two weeks before uh, there's a long-standing habit of uh, 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 last-minute sign-ups for regional moots, uh, which is a, a time-honored tradition. Um, but that's why I wanted to emphasize this, uh, that if you're planning to come in person, if you would like to attend on site there in, uh, uh, in, in Ohio, then there's, there is a limit uh, on that. So, um, I just uh, wanted to definitely emphasize that Buckeye Moot happening. Um, it's going to be on that last Saturday of this month, uh, the month of July, so July 30th. Um, you can find more information for that. Where did I put it? I had a, I had a thing somewhere. Here it is. Um, yeah, so we're going to be in Glendale, Ohio, which is just outside of Cincinnati, basically, is where we're going to be. Um, so you can go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you will find this page, and there is the Buckeye Moot registration right up there at the top. Um, so anyway, wanted to make sure to emphasize, don't miss out. I know there were a lot of people who were excited about Buckeye Moot, uh, and uh, we should have uh, a really cool uh, remote attendance. All of our regional moots, uh, as has been the case now for over a year, um, are, we're planning to make all of them hybrid moots moving forward so people can attend um, remotely uh, to any uh, to anyone that you like. But I definitely wanted to recommend uh, for those who were in and around the Ohio area who wanted to be able to come. Um, this is a really, really fun opportunity and uh, we're coming to your part of the country here for the first time. So uh, very excited about that. So anyway, um, we're gonna we're gonna do that. Are we gonna recreate Karathros at Mountain Moot? We might think about it. I will see. I don't, I don't know if the passes will be quite frozen over yet, but then again, who does ever think that, right? Um, but uh, anyhow, 
Um, the second announcement I wanted to make is to echo an announcement uh, that I made at MythMoot, a very exciting announcement uh, for uh, uh, everybody here, uh, of, of interest to folks here, and that is I announced the release of my new book, Exploring the Lord of the Rings, Volume 1. So a lot of people have been asking about this for a long time. Um, are Am I going to write an Exploring the Lord of the Rings book like my Exploring the Hobbit book? And the answer is yes. Yes, I am. And there are a couple things um, that have uh, been sort of holding me back. Uh, no, it's not exactly the right thing, the right way to say it, but a little bit. Um, uh, one thing is I, I wanted to wait for our discussions here. Um, this has been uh, a long and in-depth preparation for writing this book. This also, of course, addresses a question that several people have asked here before, which is, um, you know, have pointed out that although it's fun to talk our way through the book very slowly and very in-depth as we've been doing and exploring the Lord of the Rings, um, that it kind of makes it hard to see the big picture, you know, uh, since we're always in so, um, in so deep there. Um, and it's true. We, there's really, there's, there's little room in our discussions. We make lots of observations. We do lots of thinking through and, you know, sort of analysis of each, you know, each sentence and each, uh, uh, each paragraph, but we don't really have the space in this in these discussions to back up and look at the big picture. That's what the books are designed to do. So this is volume one. Volume one is going to be covering just book one of the Fellowship of the Ring. So this is going to be from the long expected party through the flight to the Ford. Um, and uh, so I'm going to be taking a lot of stuff from our discussions there um, in uh, our discussions here, right? Uh, as we've uh, as we have gone through from those um, uh, rushed early days, um, all the way down through, uh, uh, all the way down through uh, the the flight to the Ford and spiritual boulders and everything else. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. If you want to see a little bit more about what's involved there, you can read my introductory chapter, uh, which is open. So let me tell you a little bit because this is the other thing. So on the one hand, <clears throat> I'm releasing the book, but it's not done yet. Let me explain how that's going to work. Um, one of the other challenges, of course, uh, to writing this book has simply just been getting the time to do it. I'm doing a lot of stuff, not just my uh, like six or seven weekly broadcasts, um, but also, you know, <clears throat> running a university and uh, uh, getting that started up. Uh, and it turns out that's a lot of work. So um, there's a lot going on with Signum. There's so many things that we have been doing that I've, uh, I've been really excited about. And it's been uh, it's been really great. But it's not left me a whole lot of time for just hanging out and writing a book. Um, what I have decided, though, um, is to undertake this project in community with you guys. So, um, and this is, <clears throat> by the way, also about the Signum University Press. Signum University Press at Signum University, one of the new things that we're doing um, is we've started, uh, uh, we've started a press. We're going to be publishing uh, not only, uh, we're going to be publishing ebooks, we're going to be publishing some uh, uh, audio video pro uh, projects and things as well. Um, it's going to be, we the Signum University Press is going to be a digital press, um, which does things a little bit differently. And one of the things that I am 
interested to explore, to try out, um, is that I would like to see about making the publication process itself to avail, to avail ourselves more of the opportunity through the internet that we, you know, that we use, that we have found uh, at Signum, the, uh, the ways that we can, you know, connect as a community, um, and to sort of put that to the service of the publication process itself. Let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean is, normally a press just sort of takes a finished book, right? You know, they just, a book is written and they take the book and they just, their job is just to get the book to you, right? And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I, I appreciate uh, that and everything that's involved in that. Um, but especially with the way that exploring the Lord of the Rings has been from the beginning, uh, this, you know, dynamic community project, I wanted to involve people a little bit more. So here's how it's going to work. How it's going to work is I'm going to be writing this book um, over the course of the next year or so. Um, and I'm going to be dropping about a chapter a month. A chapter a month is my pledge. That's, uh, that is what we're going to do. Um, and, uh, we're, uh, you can be, you can be basically getting it and reading it chapter by chapter as it comes out. So you're not just, you're on the one hand, you're can get early access to the book. Um, but in addition to getting early access, you can really be a part uh, of the whole uh, the whole book experience. As I say, um, this project has emerged from the beginning as part of a uh, uh, as part of a community project. And I would love the book to be a community project too. So if you go to press.signumuniversity.org and you can find my Exploring the Lord of the Rings page here, um, you can go and you can read the introduction. Um, uh, and this is all within BlackBerry. It's the same uh, online system. Uh, you do need to create a login for BlackBerry. It's a very, it's free. Uh, it's very simple. Um, this is exactly where we do all of our um, all of our space stuff, uh, the space uh, courses and everything. The, th those all live here too. Uh, so it's the same system. Um, so you go to our press page here. This is the page for my book within BlackBerry. Um, you can click here to read the introduction. So you have here, this is the, the web version of the introduction. Um, uh, love, yeah, the, the artwork uh, on my, my cover art here is by Emily Austin, uh, recent Signum alumna, uh, and uh, I love her work. Many of you know Emily Austin's uh, awesome artwork. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so... You can read my introduction here. Um, in my introduction, I'm explaining the book and uh, how I'm meaning to do it. And then I go through all of the different themes. You may, again, you may remember in my um, uh, in my Hobbit book, I had a, a series of themes that I was tracking all the way through the book. The book was organized chapter by chapter, uh, but I was tracking a whole bunch of themes consistently throughout the book. I'm doing the same thing here, but this is the Lord of the Rings, not the Hobbit. So there's a lot, right? So in addition to like the major themes, each theme also has like three or four um, individual threads uh, that I'm following as well. Um, so I explain all of the themes and all of the sub threads um, that I'm going to be looking at throughout the whole Lord of the Rings. Right, um, and then explain how the book's going to work and everything. So all that stuff you can you can uh, get for free and read the introduction here. There's an audio version as well. The audio version isn't posted yet. Um, we're working on that, um, but the, I am going to be uh, posting the book as an audio book as we uh, uh, as we go through uh, here as well. Um, anyway, so 
Uh, there are several different purchase options for the book. If you just would like access to the book as I go, right? You know, if you just want to get the chapter drops when they come so that you can get early access to the book, you could. So there, 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 there are three options, right? Option number one is just to wait. You can wait. You want to wait. You could wait. The book will be finished next fall, basically. Uh, I'm, you know, plan. I'm not sure exactly when, but um, the plan is next fall. The book will be done. You can just wait until then, and then we're going to have a fully, you know, uh, pimped out audiobook, right? Audiobook and ebook that you can get. It's going to be great. Um, but, um, but you don't have to wait, right? Uh, option number two is you can pre-order now uh, or you can subscribe, um, just do a monthly subscription and you can read the chapters as they come. So you'll, you'll get the, you'll get those early drops. Um, the first chapter should be dropping. I'm hoping for August, there's one legal detail that I'm working out still. Um, and when I finish working that out, then I will drop chapter one. Um, but, um, as I say, that's planned for, I'm hoping August at latest, I'm hoping September. Uh, so that will be, um, that will be when chapter one is going to drop. Um, and then it'll be every month after that uh, through next fall. So, so again, one is one option is just to wait. The other option is to pay the price. You is to 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 pre-order, um, to subscribe, and then you can get access to it. And you can pay in a couple different ways. You can just pay upfront. Twenty dollars is the price of the book, uh, the initial price of the book. So you can buy that now. Um, pay the twenty bucks now, and you'll get every chapter as they come. Right. So just pay the, you know, if you, when, when you, when you pay for your book, you'll get the chapter drops as they come throughout the whole time. Uh, you can also do a monthly subscription. That's not ready yet here on the page. We're working on that behind the scenes as well. Um, work in progress. It's the theme of this whole thing. Um, so, um, you can, uh, as it's basically it's like two bucks a chapter, right? As you go, uh, if you want to, if you want to, uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, wait on it and subscribe, you can do that. You can purchase or subscribe to the ebook, uh, only, uh, the audio book only, or both. You can get both the, uh, access to both the print version or the, uh, text version, I should say, uh, and the audio book version as well. Um, I'm going to be recording that, um, as I go through, um, I will be then re-recording that for the, the final version with any edits or whatever that we go through. But there's a third option also, um, because as I said, I wanted, uh, there were some people who have expressed interest in being a little, uh, more deeply involved in this project. And I thought that would be a lot of fun. Um, and so this option is the author circle and what the author circle, um, that gives you not only early access to the book, chapter by chapter as I drop uh, each chapter coming through. Uh, but also, it uh, enables you to be more actively engaged uh, in the process. So um, you will get, of course, access to the chapters, both in text and audio as they release. Uh, you will get access to some notes and updates during the writing process. So I'm going to be, there's a bunch of times when I'm going to be doing some like brainstorming videos where I'm talking through things and thinking through stuff and giving access to notes and outlines that I'm working on. So the author circle is going to get access to those things as I come through. After I drop each chapter, I'm going to do a monthly meeting with the author circle. So we're going to have a live discussion of the chapter that I already did. I'm really interested to hear people's feedback um, and input as we go through. And of course, like if you make a really cool suggestion that I end up integrating into the book, you point out something that I've forgotten or whatever, um, then, um, you know, I'll, 
I'll, I'll footnote you in the book, right? Need uh, uh, one way or the other, um, you know, I'll include the author circle uh, on my acknowledgments uh, at the start of the book. Um, and then when the final book is completed and ready for its uh, final publication at the end of the process, uh, you'll get a personalized version uh, of the book there uh, at the end as well. So this is basically the author circle are for people who want to, who really want to be more engaged in the process and people who, who really want to be patrons of this process. Um, the subscription level for the author circle is $25 a month um, as we go through $25 a chapter, which is exactly the same as $25 a month. I am very confident in that, but I'm going to say per chapter just in case. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. So um, that's uh, that's how the author circle is going to work. Um, uh, there have been a, a bunch of people who have signed up for the author circle already. I'm excited to. I've got some uh, got some some stuff I've been thinking about sending you guys already. Uh, so anyway, um, that is the plan. So you can be you can you can wait here you know, 15 months, whatever it is from now uh, until the book is completed, or you can pre-order it, right? You can you can order it now and you can get early access to each chapter as it comes and then you'll get automatically a copy of the final finalized copy of the ebook or the audiobook or both whichever one whichever you order. Um, or you can join the author circle. Um, and uh, again for uh, a larger monthly subscription, again to be sort of a deeper patron of the project uh, and you can come along with me and be involved in those discussions from the start. Uh, so I'm really really excited about that. Uh, Freebird is, um, yes, um, uh, Rola Velen, welcome, by the way. Um, does the author circle include the audiobook? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. You'll get both print and audio uh, with the author circle for sure. Yep, yep. Um, let's see, other questions that you guys have? Um, uh, yeah, good. Okay. Um, yes, um, Erua Hill, we are planning. Um, when the book is finalized and it's ready for its final published version, um, then I am going to be, we are going to um, be doing like basically a print on demand um, for people who want paper books. Um, I know there are those who still prefer their books on paper and that's totally fine. That's not going to be a core element of what we do at Signum University Press. We really are a digital press uh, from this, you know, from from jump here. Um, that's part of the whole philosophy of how we plan to do things at Signum University Press, but we're not like anti-paper books. We will facilitate that and make that possible. So um, it'll be, as I say, on a kind of a print-on-demand basis. I will sign paper books. Um, I can also personalize ebooks and audiobooks. Um, uh, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that too. But um, anyway. So, um, that's, uh, that's the story. Any other questions that folks have? Um, oh wait, so someone was asking, um, what does all this mean for this class? Freebird, it makes this class more essential than ever. Um, it does mean, and I say this in the introduction, like I tried to be as frank about this as possible because a lot of people, uh, haven't sort of thought this through, um, but yes, I fully intend to wait until we finish discussing book two of Fellowship of the Ring, for instance, before I write volume two. Um, I'm planning to continue doing this class as we've been doing, right? Having these discussions, these have been transformative for me. I mean, um, the Explorer has 
simply been the most incredible Tolkien learning experience of my life. And I would like to continue that. Like that is what is inspiring these books. And that's what's going to uh, uh, really make these books remarkable. I don't plan to move ahead of them. <clears throat> so I'm going to wait until after we have discussed our way through each, uh, through each volume uh, uh, in order to, uh, to then go and write the book on that. So it does mean there's going to be a little bit of delay between the volumes. Uh, and it does mean <laughs> that uh, volume six is, is going to be a while before, <laughs> before it comes out. Uh, it'll, it, yes. Does that mean I'm going to wait 30 years to publish volume six? Yep. Uh-huh. That's exactly, exactly what that means. Um, but um, anyway, so that's what's, uh, uh, so that's what's good. But fortunately, there are many other things to talk about, too. And I'm really excited. Um, as I've said, uh, it has been hard for me to carve out time to get time to write. And it's been something I've been longing for for years. Um, and I think that this model um, that, um, you know, that I'm experimenting with uh, uh, on exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, is going to be, I think this is going to be a really good model for um, producing work and you know, for, for uh, producing stuff, right? For writing books. Um, and uh, there's a whole bunch of things that I want to do. Um, and I'm really looking forward to um, the, you know, the, the feedback and the engagement, uh, you know, as part of that journey with you guys as we go through. Um, so there'll be, there'll be some gaps in between the volumes uh, of exploring the Lord of the Rings, but that'll be a good thing because there'll be more things to do. People have been teasing me about, am I going to do exploring the Silmarillion? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I could totally do exploring the Silmarillion. We'd, I don't know if, I don't think I'm going to live long enough. I doubt, not even I am that optimistic. Um, I don't think I'm going to live long enough to do exploring the Silmarillion when we finish exploring the Lord of the Rings. I do believe that finishing exploring the Lord of the Rings will be my retirement uh, from live broadcasting. That's my fearless prediction right now. Um, I, think I'll, I think I'll make it, um, but I don't know how much further I'll make it after that. Um, but, uh, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't work through some things together. Um, and I, there's a bunch of projects that I really, really look forward to doing. Um, I would love to do exploring the Silmarillion um, to work our way through that together. Um, and not just the Silmarillion. I would really like to do some stuff with the history of Middle-earth too. Um, uh, a particular thing that's kind of on my heart to do that I would really love um, is to do a book that that examines the growth um, of the Lord of the Rings, looking at the history of the Lord of the Rings volumes of the history of Middle-earth and how the story took shape in Tolkien's mind. We've kind of touched on that here and there in a few places uh, in our discussions in exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, I would love to kind of do that a little bit more, um, um, uh, a, a bit more thoroughly, right? Um, but... Um, Anyway, so um, yeah, there are, I, have, I have all kinds of books. Not to mention, there's like other non-Tolkien books I'd like to write too. Um, I would. I there's a at least one Watership Down book I would really love to write. I'd like to write my uh, to, to write a Dracula book. Uh, I, you know, so, some of these books, uh, some of you guys have discussed with me in the Mythgard Academy series, which would be a whole lot of fun. Um, but um, anyway. So much, uh, so much time. Yeah, you know, JJ, I've often thought that, like, if I could just have 
like a magic ring that would just extend my life. I, I think that's just what I need, right? Uh, because I think that would work out great. Uh, I just, uh, I've just, I've been thinking about it and thinking about it, and I just, I don't see any flaws in this plan. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I think it really could work. Um, exactly, no downsides at all. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, but. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see like a block of text spread over too many pages. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, so I probably won't actually pursue uh, that plan, but um, uh, but we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. Anyway, there's plenty of time to be doing more stuff. So we will see. So I I invite you on uh, my uh, my writing and publication journey. Um, this is going to be uh, like an, a, an interactive process. You can go right now, pre-order the book, um, and uh, then you'll get the chapters as they come. You can sign up for the author circle and be engaged in the, uh, the really wild parts of the experiment uh, and interacting with me. So I just wanted to commend that to you. Um, you guys, of course, in particular here, my regular audience and exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, really, this book is 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 from and about you guys more than anything else. So uh, really excited to uh, to share this with you going forward. I've been uh, been working on it, uh, the book, and it's uh, it's just it's so exciting to think through. It was one of those things. I don't know. Some of you might have had an experience like this, but um, there were a couple times before where I toyed with the idea of going ahead and starting to write the book. Right. I, I, I try. But each time I, d I tried, I sat down with it and it was like, I didn't feel it. I just, I didn't, I didn't, and that sounds like really squishy, right? But it's, but it was totally true. Like it was like, you know, it's not coming. It's not, as soon as I sat down to do this um, with this plan in mind and I was like, okay, let me, let me experiment with this. It was just like, oh yeah, this is the way, uh, this is gonna, this is gonna happen. It's so exciting. Um, but um Anyway, so can't wait to share it with you. Hope you guys will all uh, 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 consider coming along with me here. Uh, and of course, helping to, um, uh, you know, in doing so, helping to support, uh, you know, not only me, but also Signum University as well. Um, the Signum University Press is really hoping to um, be able to publish some really cool stuff. We're going to be doing not only scholarship, um, but fiction. Um, and also, as I said, some uh, uh, some audio video projects as well, film documentaries and stuff like that. Um, it's a bunch of things that we're planning to do. And as usual at Signum, we're hoping to make a difference. The difference, you know, with our uh, educational programs um, the main thing we've been focusing on is tuition, making sure that th we can make things available, make, you know, excellent education available at a price that's not going to cripple students. That's been the core of our calling in our educational programs with our um, uh, with our uh, press. Um, the problem there um, is not so much the price of books, though that's not great in some places, and there are some pla some ways in which the price of books are, especially scholarship, the it tends to get priced ridiculously out of the range of normal people. So, being able to 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 publish really great scholarship that's actually accessible to people is one of the things we should be doing. But really, the the main difference that we're hoping to make in the publishing side of things is supporting authors and artists better um, who often really get the shaft um, in the modern publishing world. And just as, you know, we kind of, Signum kind of looked at 
the student debt issue and said, you know what, that shouldn't be. Um, let's see if we can find a new way to do this differently. Um, that's where we've really been looking at the publishing world and saying, that's not right. Um, we think that we can treat um, authors, scholars, artists, um, performers uh, much better than they are traditionally done. So that's what we're that's what we're we're working on. Um, Okay. Yes. And I saw a question. Um, who's going to be reading the audiobook? Me. I'm reading the audiobook. Um, kind of insisted on that. We could have found somebody with a cooler voice than me, but um, I, you know, as this book has emerged from my, uh, my weekly teaching, I, I really wanted to voice it myself. So, uh, so I'm reading the audiobook myself for sure. Um, and as I say that um, uh, I'll be the, the, the introductory audio will be dropping soon. Um, and the, um, uh, and, uh, each chapter as they drop, that will be available. As I said, you can get that in print or audio or both. So sorry, text or audio or both. We, 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 uh, argue about, uh, nomenclature. Uh, I keep slipping up and saying print, print is the word that I use for like printed letters, like letters that are, you know, that, that you look at with your eyes. Um, but, uh, but I've lost that argument, um, because too many people associate the word print with actual paper, like print on paper. So, um, uh, yeah, Sarah, in my vocabulary, print equals visible, uh, you know, audio, Equal, you know, print equals eyes, audio equals ears. Um, but um, anyway, um, uh, text, text. Uh, so we're gonna so we're gonna have text, which means the like the ebook, and then print will refer to the actual printed books. Uh, <laughs> am I gonna double space after periods in the ebook? Evil Doctor Cannon asking the crucial question. Um, uh, this came up in our panel discussion at Mythmoot when we were announcing the press. Uh, people were teasing me. I am one of those people who puts two spaces after uh, periods. Uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, <laughs> no, I'll be very surprised if there are two spaces. If there are any, uh, if the two spaces are left after my periods. Uh, um, <laughs> so, yeah, probably, probably not. Probably not. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So uh, again, press.signumuniversity.org if you want to uh, come in and, and order that. Um, and I invite you to do that. All right. Let's uh, move forward. It's time to get back to Gimli, whom we've left in mid-speech uh, mid here. <clears throat> so uh, I'll start it back again where we read the, we talked about the first paragraph um, and then we stopped before he started to dilate more on Moria. Right. I need no map, said Gimli, who had come up with Legolas and was gazing out before him with a strange light in his deep eyes. There is the land where our fathers worked of old, and we have wrought the image of those mountains into many works of metal and of stone, and into many songs and tales. They stand tall in our dreams. Baraz, Zirak, Shathur. Only once before have I seen them from afar in waking life, but I know them and their names, for under them lies Khazad-dûm, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit, Moria in the elvish tongue. Yonder stands Barazinbar, the Redhorn, cruel Karathras, and beyond him are Silvertine and Cloudyhead, Kalebdil the White, and Fanuathal the Grey, that we call Zirakzigil and Bundushathur. There the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget, Azanulbazar, 
the Dimril Dale, which the elves call Nanduhirian. Whew. Okay. Um, that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's, uh, you could say, uh, this is of course the speech that inspires Sam to comment on what a fair jaw cracker dwarf language must be. Um, but, um, let's, uh, Review. <laughs> okay, we talked about the first paragraph, kind of, but let's talk a little bit about the first paragraph again. Um, one thing that I don't remember commenting on last time is the ver- is the verb worked. There is the land where our fathers worked of old, which I find um, a really beautiful uh, kind of uh, kind of thing. Just as a like reminder, um, it's easy to forget. Tolkien does such a wonderful job through The Lord of the Rings, such a wonderful and such an understated job of building the dwarf culture. Um, The dwarves as a a people really take shape. Of course, The Hobbit is really where they begin to take shape, though that's a work in progress through the course of The Hobbit itself, right? Um, we get to know the dwarves a little bit better, and they begin to take shape more clearly uh, as we get towards the end of The Hobbit. The shift, you know, the famous shift in tone uh, in The Hobbit as it becomes much more serious. You know, you may remember, for instance, uh, in his uh, London Times review, C.S. Lewis talking about the... um, how we suddenly find ourselves like in uh, uh, you know a serious Norse saga at the end in, when what started off like a children's fairy tale, um, but um, anyway, um, so we get more and we get more serious stuff about the dwarves, um, but the Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings in general, Gimli in particular, um, are really transformational. I think for our understanding of the dwarves. Um, and it's easy to forget how marginal the dwarves were in Tolkien's imagination. I mean, this is one of the things for people who read the first five volumes of the history of middle earth. Um, you know, the, the volumes which cover the work that Tolkien did from his teens through the publication of the Hobbit, essentially. Um, uh, and, when you read the earliest people who read that early stuff, I mean, I think definitely one of the top five reactions to that early material is, holy cow, where are the dwarves? Not only where are the dwarves, but what are the dwarves, right? In Tolkien's early imagination, there were always dwarves, um, but they're A, very marginal, B, they um, were bad guys. I mean, they were explicitly, like they're lumped in with the orcs. Um, they were part of the children of Melko uh, at the very beginning. Um, then they moved to become these um, uh, profiteering, uh, independent, like they weren't actually servants of Morgoth, but they were um, they were independent, but only independent in a war profiteering kind of way, selling arms and armor to both sides, basically, the elves and the orcs. Um, and um, it was... Uh, it was it was not a good look, right? And the Hobbit remembers those traditions. Uh, you can. There are several references in the Hobbits that will that show that that's the kind of framework that he's coming from. That he's not assuming that dwarves are heroes, right? Dwarves are not heroes. You may remember that line from the Hobbit. Um, 
but a calculating sort of people with a with a with a with a, a, a high opinion of the value of money. This is the Hobbit, right? Remember, um, that's what in fact dwarves were, right? Again, towards the end of the Hobbit, we begin to see them becoming something else, right? When Gimli steps forward and says his piece here, um, we can see dwarves. I think are quite different, right? Um, there it is. Yes, thank you, JJ, for the whole quote. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough folk like Thorin and company, if you don't expect too much. Right? Yeah, that was that was the first. And remember, that was, JJ, if I'm recalling, that's chapter 11, right? When they discover the um, the opening. Right. But this is that's all the dwarves standing around uh, when that's said in response to Thorin sending Bilbo down the hole by himself. Right. To go find Smaug. Um, And um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So you can. um, Right. The very beginning of chapter 12. Right. Exactly. Right after the the door opens at the end of chapter 11. And then right when Bilbo is going to go down and have his conversation with Smaug. Um, Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So. In other words, we're not talking about chapter one, right? We're talking about chapter. This is this is well on. This is past the the the, the turning point, past the point where the tone of the book has significantly changed, um, which happens around Lake Town. Um, anyway, um, it um, it is it is the way that he thought about dwarves originally. He's changed how he think how he thinks about dwarves, and one of the ways which absolutely gets taken for granted by so many Tolkien readers. Um, the thing which is most shocking about Tolkien's older concepts of dwarves, um, which were, and yes, I saw several of you talking about this, heavily influenced by Nor- Norse dwarves, who are not nice people, right? I mean, they, they are not heroic um, in Norse mythology in general either. Um, but um, <clears throat> anyway, okay. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, wait, sorry, lost my train of thought. Uh, Norse mythology, um, uh, yeah, (laughs) completely lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah. Um, so they're, they're the, the biggest shock that people get when they read these early accounts of dwarves. They're not craftsmen. They're not craftsmen. In fact, um, they are, they're just merchants. Like they're just about selling things. They're not about making... In fact, they're explicitly described as not making things in the very, very first versions. Um, uh, they they don't care about quality of work or anything like that. The making... The, the makeover of the dwarves into craftsmen and having that such a deep part of their identity, we see happening, flowering uh, in The Hobbit. Um and uh, that we see, like, basically, far over the Misty Mountains cold, like the song, when the when Thorin and the dwarves sing their song, um, the far over the Misty Mountains cold song, not the chip the glasses and crack the plate song. Um, uh, the chip the glasses and crack the plate song is much more, <laughs> much more tra- traditional dwarf melody, right? Um, but uh, anyway, they are... Um, we see that they're the emphasis on their craftsmanship and it's a major departure, right? It's a big deal. And here with, yes, the creation of Aule, that story, Jackie, the story of Aule making the dwarves is much later. That's that postdates the Hobbit, 
um, significantly. Um, that chapter of the Silmarillion, the, the Ovalle and Yavanna chapter was not there um, through the writing of the Lord of the Rings. It postdates this, actually. Um, it had not been written yet when uh, Gimli speaks his piece here uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a um, that's a piece of retcon after all this stuff happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so uh, so here we are. Right. This is why I, I digressed onto all of that, um, because that first sentence gives us this fresh understanding, even compared to The Hobbit in a lot of ways. Right. It's not alien to The Hobbit. Um, the seeds of all of this is, are, are, are there in The Hobbit. And we definitely kind of are brought to that place um, by the time we get to, we see Thorin and the dwarves interacting with the work of their fathers, uh, the craft of their fathers, I mean, uh, in Erebor, right, um, when they're exploring the dragon's horde after Smaug's death, though they don't know it yet. Um, we begin to see these things. But again, this first sentence, there is, there is the land where our fathers worked of old. Um, what he values about this, it's not you know, the value of it, right? It's not the ownership. Um, that kind of jealousy of ownership is another thing very much associated with dwarves, still associated with dwarves through the Lord of the Rings. Um, this um, sort of possessiveness, right? Which we know to have, we, we see uh, in the latter parts of The Hobbit, you know, flame up into uh, very uh, dangerous and, and, uh, and unpleasant um sort of manifestations there with Thorin and the dragon sickness. Um, but, um, but we don't, we don't see that either. You know, this is, this is the land where our fathers worked of old. Um, all this work was done here. Right. Um, and I think he means several things at once there. Right. I think he means the kingdom that my father's you know, my forefathers carved from under those mountains is there, right? The Where their fathers worked of old means, on the one hand, to make Khazad-dûm itself, right? But I think it also means um, the place where, Khazad-dûm, the place where they, um, uh, the, the place where they did all of their other work, right? You know, where they, think of all of the things that have been, ma that were made and crafted there over the years. It's almost like the mountains themselves have in Gimli's imagination and in the imagination of his people been hallowed by all of the craftsmanship that has gone into the mountains themselves, but has taken place within that place. Um, uh, I love, we talked about the pairing into many works of metal and of stone and into many songs and tales. Uh, the rhetorical balance of that first sentence is really beautiful. There is the land where our fathers worked of old, and we have wrought the image of those mountains into many works of metal and of stone and into many songs and tales. The pairing, the two hard things, metal and stone, right? The two... Uh, you know, ephemeral things, right? Uh, impermanent things, songs and tales. And yet, of course, songs and tales often outlive metal and stone, right? But uh, um, uh, anyways, the way that those are poised against each other, I think, is really beautiful. They stand tall in our dreams. Baraz, Zirak, Shathur. Um, 
the fact that we get the dwarvish words there not to be overlooked, right? Not to be taken for granted. Um, Gandalf is going to mention, he hasn't mentioned it yet, but Gandalf is going to mention um, that they don't teach the dwarf language to people, right? Um, it's a secret language. They keep it secret on purpose. Um, Gimli, therefore, this is, um, this is a bit of an overshare, <laughs> by Gimli, right? I mean, he, that is, he's going way in ab above and beyond the Call of Duty here. As we will see, there are outside names, right, um, that are known to others, to the elves, to humans, right? Gimli knows those names perfectly well. He could have led with that, right? Um, they stand tall in our dreams. Karathras, Kalebdil, Fanuithal, he could have said, giving them their elvish names, right? Or he could have done it you know, in the common speech. Um, and, but he doesn't do that, right? He gives the dwarf names. And also notice, um, he is going to tell us the full names of the mountains, right? In the dwarvish tongue. Barazinbar, right? Zirak Zigil and Bundushathur. But those aren't the names that he gives us at the end of that first paragraph. Baraz, Zirak, Shathur. And we can see all three of those names as, you know, Barazinbar, right? Zirak Zigil and Bundu Shathur, right? Um, it's almost like when he first mentions them, you know, they stand tall in our dreams, um, which I agree with you. It's such a beautiful sentence. Several people have said like that, just that idea of the, them standing tall in, in their dreams is, is just a beautiful reference. Um, it's a... Uh, yeah, Bjarnason and I totally agree. Um, it sounds like common shortenings for dwarves who need to talk about these mountains a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a, their nicknames. He's not only giving their names in the dwarvish language, he's giving their, like, dwarvish familiar names, right? Um, these are like their pet names in the dwarf language. That's like double secret. Uh, I mean, like triple secret. Um, uh, triple secret in the sense that it's secret because it's, Dwarvish words in the first place, any Dwarvish words, any words from 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 the Dwarvish language, then it's the names of their home mountains, right? Like their their own home. But then it's what they familiarly call these mountains, right? Um, he, he's being, it seems, hasty uh, in the way you'll remember ahead uh, to Treebeard, who um, is honored by the confidence of Merry and Pippin when they're so quick to tell him their right names, right? You'll be letting your own right names out, you know, uh, soon. Um, that's kind of what Gimli's doing here, but for the mountains, right? <laughs> it is like giving the Wi-Fi password. <laughs> it's exactly like that. Um, and praise, I agree. It shows trust of his companions. There is an intimacy in this sentence that is easy to overlook. If you, cause you can get lost in, in sort of just like the, the alienness, right. Of the Dwarvish words. Right. Um, and, and miss, I think that cause it really is, um, uh, it really is an intimacy, uh, thing. Um, 
And yeah, uh, uh, Juan asks, why does uh, Gimli say the mountain names? Is it to cause a bonding moment with the company uh, before approaching dwarvish places? Something like that. I, I think Gimli is just, he's moved, right? Gimli's sharing. Um, Gimli's opening up. Um, we're getting to see Gimli and getting to know Gimli. He, he, he cares about this, but he doesn't have to share it, right? I mean, that's, it, it, I think it tells us something about Gimli, not only about his love for his traditions, you know, his, um, how much, how moved he is to be looking upon these mountains, um, which he has only seen once before from afar in waking life, um, which as we discussed last time makes it sound like he's seen them before in his dreams. Like, you know, they stand tall in our dreams. Um, it sounds like he means that quite literally that he regularly dreams about these mountains, even though he's only seen them once in waking life, his his own self. Right. Um, so we know how much it means to him. Um, but it tells us something more about him that his response to this feeling is to share. And that might seem, you know, logical, right? Like, yeah, sure. Like you do. Right. I mean, you got your, your, your friends and companions there, but this is not an assumption for a dwarf for sure. Right. Um, that is not something I think we can take for granted. It tells us something about Gimli. Um, we've not yet come to the place. Gimli has not yet become famous friends with Legolas. Right. Um, Gimli, there's a lot of experiences Gimli has not had. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, the, the bonding that is going to be. Um, it's only been a couple of weeks that they've been traveling together. Um, and we had no evidence that they spent any time whatsoever with Gimli in Rivendell before they left. Like he wasn't, you know, he's not been, he wasn't a part of their little council, you know, the council of Bilbo and all that kind of thing. Like he, he, he's, um, uh, he's a family friend in a sense, to Frodo, right? But remember, that's indirect on both sides. Um, Glowen and Bilbo were companions, right? Um, And so the two of them, that is Gimli and Frodo, will be indirectly known to each other. But I'm sure many of you have had the experience of, like, getting thrown together with, like, the kid of one of your parents' friends, right? It doesn't always lead to instantaneous bonding in my experience, right? And that's kind of Gimli and Frodo, right? Uh, yeah, Glowin and Bilbo, um, uh, uh, you know, had a lot that they shared, but um, uh, this is, this is not, um, uh, this is not the, the sort of the normal, the normal thing. Um, anyway, so um, uh, it does say something about Gimli that he is willing to open up about this, um, that he is willing to share this with them. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's kind of a big deal. But now on to the rest of his share here. Um, I, only once before have I seen them from afar in waking life, but I know them and their names, for under them lies Hazadum, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit, Moria in the Elvish tongue. Um, okay. Um, first of all, notice what... First notice what Tolkien is doing here. Um, and then um, notice what that, again, shows us about Gimli's character. So, um, 
this paragraph is like mm, almost self-indulgent on Tolkien's part, right? Um, Tolkien loves this, right? Notice what he's doing. What he's doing is continuously through the whole rest of this paragraph giving translations, right? He's giving translations. Under them lies Khazad-dûm, the Dwarodelf. Okay, so those are not just two names. Those are translations. He's giving us... This paragraph is like, a, is like the Rosetta Stone, right? Well, it's like the Rosetta Pebble. It's not the whole stone, right? So you don't get the whole passage translated into multiple languages. But this is... There are several places where we get these kind of little nuggets. Um, this is one of the things uh, in... Um, uh, James Tauber and Elise Cedeno's space course. They've been doing a space course on Tolkien's invented languages in the Lord of the Rings. This is one of the passages that they'll look at. Um, the places where Tolkien gives us the tools that we need to begin to learn his secondary languages. Um, and you can, you, can, you can see that here, right? So, okay, so we've got Khazad-dûm the Dwaro Delph. Um, it took me a long time before I realized uh, that that was... Um, uh, that that was a translation because I didn't know what the word Dwaro meant. Um, but of course, uh, some of you may be familiar with the story. Um, when Tolkien was publishing The Hobbit, uh, right? Um, and it, this is actually when he was in correspondence with the proofreaders at Houghton Mifflin. I, I'm sure I've told this story sometime or other. Um, Houghton Mifflin, the American publishers of The Hobbit. Um, and he was arguing with their proofreaders. Their proofreaders went through The Hobbit and changed all of his dwarves, D-W-A-R-V-E-S, to dwarfs, uh, saying the correct plural, uh, you know, you've said dwarves all the way through the correct plural is actually dwarfs. And they corrected him. Uh, and of course, like Tolkien uh, rolled his eyes and said, well, technically, the correct plural of dwarf would be dwaro, but I'm not going to stick to that, right? Um, so uh, let's <laughs> agree to just, uh, you know, dwarfs is not in fact correct. I understand that's the accepted usage. It's not actually the correct plural. Um, so let's compromise and stick with dwarves, shall we? Um, by the way, I believe that one of the... Um, uh, Silk Westcott was making a joke about Snow White and the Seven Dwaro. Um, I, I totally think that Snow White was a huge part of why Tolkien was so stubborn on that point. Um, to differentiate The Hobbit from Disney. People forget that The Hobbit was published within months of the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, and that Tolkien's own... Uh, Tolkien, like the marketplace... Disney was pretty good at the merch, even back in the 30s. Um... That is, Walt himself was pretty big on the merch. Uh, and um, uh, and there were like little plastic dwarf knickknacks for sale all over the place. And indeed, the story is that they had even invaded his own home, that Priscilla really liked the dwarf little seven dwarf knickknack things. Um, Tolkien hated them. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so he was well aware. There was a lot more... Um, uh, advanced marketing for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs than there was for The Hobbit, shockingly, right? So, um, anyway, I, I believe that uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs um, was very much uh, one of the things that he was 
uh, that was fueling his uh, desire to have a, a different plural uh, for dwarves. Um, and yes, Gilgalady, that is true. Um, the uh, if I had one, uh, if I had one wish, um, you know, if there were one like I wish I could have been there in Tolkien's lifetime moment, it might be um, to have gone to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in the theater with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who saw it together in the theater um, at Oxford. Um, uh, I, yeah, I, um, uh, man, I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, uh, we don't know very much about the outcome of that evening, uh, but, uh, oh, man. Um, <coughs> anyway, um, so, um, yeah, it's seriously, Mudmore, I've often thought that would have been the greatest MSD3K ever in the history of film. Um, but, um, oh, man. Okay, anyway, point is, Dwaro, plural of dwarves, right? Delf, it just means delving, right? Like the thing delved by dwarves, right? The city del delved by dwarves. Um, so there's our first little hint Right, we've been taught our first piece of Kuzdul there, Khazad Dum. So, Khazad, okay, dwarf, in the dwarf language, the dwarf's name for themselves is Khazad, right? And we will hear that again, of course, in Gimli's battle cry, right? The axes of the dwarves are upon you, right? Baruch Khazad, um, the axes of the dwarves are upon you. Um, so, again, we can get um, uh, we can get a little bit of. Uh, um, Oh, sorry. And I meant to comment. One of you, uh, uh, who was it? Praise? Was it? Who said? Um, which is totally true and ironic and fun that, of course, uh, oh, yeah, musical is you, um, that people tend to say now, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Um, uh, Tolkien's plural has won. Um, so in the end, I, Tolkien didn't only win that fight with uh, the proofreaders at Houghton Mifflin. He, he beat Disney, right? Um, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs look silly now. Um, uh, but yeah, he, he beat English. Exactly, Valori. Exactly. Um, it's, um, it's fun. Now, you're right, Music, although we can't yet quite be certain about the syntax here. Um, Khazad uh, Doom, like which half of it means dwarves, right? Um, but I, I, though I think we can kind of guess, and as I say, we'll get that a little bit confirmed later on. But then we get the next one that is now called the Black Pit, Moria, in the Elvish tongue, right? So here's our little hint about the Elvish tongue, right? Um, that the more uh, prefix, the M-O-R prefix, which, of course, we've already heard very famously in Mordor, the Black Land, as it's already been called, Um Okay, so more equals black in the Elvish. Do you see what I mean when I call this paragraph? Well, Self-indulgent sounds like an insult, and I don't mean it as an insult, but um, uh, how this is um, the the philologist and teacher, right? He, he doesn't just want to use his invented languages in his names. Um, he wants to use his invented languages in his names in ways that are going to sound appropriate, but that are also going to help people to awaken 
to the reality of those languages themselves, right? To, he wants to try to help the languages themselves to come alive, I think, to people. Um, it would be one thing just to use his own language to come up with cool sounding names, and he does that. Um, uh, but he seems to want a little bit more than that. Um, uh, and, uh, we, and this is one of those places, there are other places where we'll see it. This is one of, in my opinion, um, one of the shining examples of this in the entire Lord of the Rings, this paragraph. Um, and he goes on before, um, uh, who was talking about this before? I'm forgetting who was. I think it was you. Um, but, um, was pointing out that, um, Moria is not translated into the Dwarvish language, right? We don't get the Kuzdul version for that. There might be one, maybe, or maybe not, right? Maybe they just, they don't cover, call it that. He brings it up, right? That is now called the Black Pit, Moria, in the Elvish tongue. The elves call it Moria. That's been translated into Westron as the Black Pit, right? Um, but he doesn't give, it's the only thing, right? Everything else. Uh, the city of the dwarves, each of the mountains, he gives the dwarvish version of, but not that one, right? Um, not that one. Yeah, maybe it's a sad name and they don't share that one, Almorea. I think that's I think that's possible that they might have. I bet you they do have a name for it um, that they call it in grief, right? Um, but um, but I doubt that that one is just a translation. Of, uh, of Black Pit, right? Um, anyway, then we get the mountains. Yonder stands Barazinbar, the Redhorn, cruel Carathras. And beyond him are Silvertain and Cloudyhead, Kalegdil the White and Fenuithal the Grey, that we call Zirek Zigil and Bundu Shathur. Um, so once again, here we've got threefold, right? We get the names in all three languages of all three mountains. Right. Um, and once again, the English enable us to be able to begin to translate. Right. OK, we've got the red horn, Karathras. Right. So Karath, Karad, Karath is the is the uh, the word for red. Right. Um, in Elvish. So, OK, um, it looks like Baraz probably uh, means red in Dwarvish. OK. All right. We're getting there. Um but a Zinbar, so is it Zinbar? Zinbar is something like horn, maybe? I mean, it might not be quite as, like, literally chopping the word in half as that. Um, but, um, uh, but, but again, you can, especially w- since you have Baraz in the, you know, the, the short version of it, right, at the end of the previous paragraph. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um. And, oh, Matt, I agree. If the dwarves had translated Moria or something like it, calling it something like the Black Pit would be a kind of surrender. Um, uh, Gimli and others still believe that it can be re-inhabited. Yes, I agree. They're not giving up on it, for sure. Um, But, um, yeah, so, um, uh, let's see. Bjorn Sonner, explain what a calc is. I'm not uh, not familiar with that term. uh, are the names calcs in Elvish? Um, yeah, explain explain that. I, I I don't I don't know that vocabulary, and I'm sure a lot of people don't. Uh, translate each part of a word or expression. I don't know for sure. Um, 
but I suspect so. Um, um, I suspect so. We know we can see elements. Right, the English and the Cinderin do look like it. Exactly, Trifle. Um, um, right, ra- rather than loaning the form or making your own original word. Yes, I, the impression that I get, certainly the English and Elvish does give me that impression too. Um, Silvertine, uh, Kalebdil. So the, the Kaleb uh, part is... You know the 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 like like Celeborn's name. Um, uh, that's Caleb means silver, right? Um, and then uh, we've got uh, cloudy head, Fanuithal, uh, Fanuithal um, the Gray. Uh, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, no, I don't think. Um, hmm. I never thought of that before. Um, I don't think, um, I don't think, so the question was which one, like, are we sure which one corresponds to which, um, yeah, well, I, I'm, Kalebdil is definitely the silver teen because Caleb is the, is the, is the word for silver. So yeah, no question. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So that's, she was thinking that silver teen and the gray and cloudy head in the white, um, would seem to kind of go together color wise. Right. Um, but I guess it depends on what sort of clouds we're talking about. Right. Um, if, uh, Fanu with all the gray, is cloudy head. It suggests we're talking about some rather serious kinds of cloud action there uh, around um, Bundu Shathur. Um, not to mention, just listen to the name, right? Bundu Shathur. Doesn't it sound like the rumble of thunder in the different in the distance? I mean, there's something almost onomatopoetic uh, about Bundu Shathur. Um, Remember the way that Tolkien describes in The Hobbit, um, in the thunder battle in The Hobbit in chapter four, um, how uh, the 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 thunder that like rolls around and, uh, you know, that like comes tumbling down the mountain and rolls down around in the valley. Uh, it's such a wonderful description of the way you can hear like the, you know, the the rumbling of thunder and things. Bundu um, Shathur always sounded to me uh, kind of like that, like the, um, you know, the the thunder coming down and then like, you know, echoing and dispersing in the valleys. Um, yeah, exactly. Fanui is cloudy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, for, for, for cloudy head there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, uh, Zirak Zigil, I'm not sure which part means silver, but one of those parts, Zirak or Zigil, one or the other, uh, is clearly silver. Like we'd need a little more evidence, right, in order to be able to uh, draw a firm conclusion. Um, but we're getting uh, we're getting some definite tips there, right, in how these things uh, how these things work together. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, yep. Anyway, um, uh, so it's. Clearly, Tolkien not just having fun with his invented languages, 
in the sense of, you know, making up names and words in his invented languages like he did, right? Um, it's not just that. This is a special kind of fun um, that is uh, embedding for his readers the fun of discovering the languages themselves. Um, all by itself, we wouldn't necessarily know that. And again, I know I read this paragraph many, many times before I figured that out. Um, Tim, for me, it was Moria, the Black Pit, um, the Mordor, and everything. You know, seeing the um, uh, the more prefix used in other places, and then I noticed the Caleb prefix used in other places, and began to see how this all sort of fit together. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Bjorn Asunder says, 60% of the fun I have in reading the Silmarillion is realizing that I understand what a name means without an explanation. Yeah, that's a fun moment. That's a fun moment when you, uh, when, when you can do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree that it's significant, Bjorning, that uh, Gimli doesn't explain what the Dwarvish names mean except Karathras. He will share the names, but not the meanings. Um, he does give a little gloss, doesn't he? Cruel Karathras. Right, a little commentary which tells you something about the stories attached uh, to Karathras. Um, uh, clearly, we're gonna we're gonna, and of course, it's a piece of foreshadowing too. We're gonna we're gonna learn more uh, about that kind of thing. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, Oof, Rowan, that's a big question. Did Tolkien distinguish petty dwarves from dwarves before writing this or after? Uh, after, I think. Um, basically, where the petty dwarves come from, like Meme, of course, in the Turin stories, the prime petty dwarf instance. Um, and Essentially, it's kind of Tolkien trying to have it both ways, in a sense. Um, that is, Meme the dwarf, he was the dwarf. I mean, like, he was he was like the Durin equivalent, pre-Durin. Before Durin was invented, there was Meme. Um, and Meme's a right jerk. Uh, and a very Norse, I'm laying a curse on the treasure kind of dwarf. Um, uh, and man, the curse of Meme huge plot feature. Uh, the Curse of Meme becomes almost a bigger plot feature than the Silmarils in the early Silmarillion. Uh, uh, so it's a big, it's a big, big deal. Um, and it's kind of like him wanting to, um, <laughs> you named your lizard meme. I had forgotten that creator. That's awesome. Um, but, um, anyway, um, uh, meme, uh, it's like he went after he changed dwarves, right? When he went back and he wanted to, but he didn't want to change meme. Uh, he wanted meme to still be, uh, uh, <laughs> the jerk he always was. Uh, so he kind of, uh, invented a, a reason for that. Um, Gilgo, I've always wondered why we don't have more memes. Um, I will tell you when I listened, uh, to the Silmarillion with my sons, um, uh, which both of my kids, for reasons, read the Silmarillion before they read the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's 
an occupational hazard, I suppose. Um, I hope it hasn't too hideously stunted their growth. But um, when they when when we got to um, you know, as we're listening to it, right? When Martin Shaw reads, um, I shall take you, to, you know, he says, welcome to the house of meme. And both of my kids just busted out laughing, you know, and they were like, how, how is this not, how is this, how is there not a website called the house of meme? Like, seriously, um, come on people. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, uh, Yeah. Um, Björning, I, I think you're right uh, coming back to this. Uh, Björning says, reading this passage with all the exposition Gimli gives, um, it makes me wonder if we shouldn't be more conscious of how big a deal it is for a dwarf to travel with men and an elf separated from the dwarvish community. Even Glowen wouldn't go to Rivendell alone. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, and Notice how um, I, I mentioned before again about what this shows us about Gimli's character. Um, Gimli is giving free tips, right? He's not just revealing the secret dwarvish names. He is drawing attention to the fact, um, to the parallels, right? He's he's inviting you to figure out some pieces of dwarvish vocabulary, um, which is kind of a big deal, right? Um, uh, that Tolkien would do that. Not really surprising that Gimli does that um, is a, it's significant. It's a big deal, right? He isn't, he's not only willing to travel with these non-dwarvish strangers, um, he's willing to teach them. He's willing to bring them into, not just to share as he was doing in that first paragraph, right? Um, let them in on his own, um, you know, secret reflections and things. Um, but that he is willing to even eager to going out of his way, um, to reach out to them, uh, and to teach them. It's, it, this says a lot about Gimli. Um, and, um, yeah, I agree. Bjorning says, I think uh, Tolkien is hinting that Gimli is special and dropping explicit reminders that Gimli will be a uniter. Yeah, Bjorning, or uh, another way to um, think about it, um, uh, <clears throat> another way to think about it is that um, this also may be the very moment where that becomes Gimli's fate, right? Um, uh, I don't... Nothing that I see in Tolkien's writing process leads me to believe that Tolkien thought out Gimli's character history in advance before writing this. That just didn't tend to be his way, right? He discovered things as he went along and was usually surprised to find them. Um, so I, I think, I, I, I agree with you, but I think what we're seeing is Gimli's role as a uniter, um, as an ambassador to other cultures, um, is emerging in his second paragraph of speech here. Um, and I think that that's going to, I certainly agree, it is going to become a more and more important and a more and more dominant uh, theme. And um, I do agree with you, um, uh, Eruakil, that uh, 
um, going back to meme for a second, that that is relevant here. This might be the last um, that might be that is this might be the first time uh, that men and elves went to a mountain with a dwarf alone since meme and Turin uh, uh, and Beleg. Um, yeah, if certainly in Tolkien's imagination, it's very relevant. Right. Um, and when you have meme uh, meme the dwarf as the primary like historical um, backdrop right behind this story, the story of Gimli traveling uh, with these, uh, you know, folks, um, it does make Gimli's character and attitude the more conspicuous as a result. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, the Peoples of Middle-earth is post-Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so you, you get more, you see Tolkien developing the dwarf stuff more in Peoples of Middle-earth, but that's well after. Um, uh, uh, well, the chronology of looking up at my shelf here. Um, the Peoples of Middle-earth is, yeah, that's, that's, that's the last volume. That's um, um, like the last couple years before Tolkien's death. Um, so some of the stuff in the Peoples of Middle-earth is written like 15 years after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, much less the writing. Um, some of that stuff is 20 years, almost 25 years after the writing of some of this stuff. Um, like, so, you know, from when he was sitting down and drafting um, this passage for the first time. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um Okay, good. Thank you, JJ. I wasn't sure. That was my thought, but I wasn't positive. Thanks for looking that up. Up through Sauron Defeated, that is uh, Sauron Defeated, uh, Volume 9 of the History of Middle-earth, and that's basically the, the end, right chronologically within Tolkien's life, the end of the com composition of the Lord of the Rings material. Um, he, says, he sees no reference of the, uh, uh, of the petty dwarves. In Tolkien's writings, only one in one of Christopher no, uh, one of Christopher's notes. So he alludes to it, alluding to the published Silmarillion, of course. Um, right. So yes, I do think that the petty dwarf concept is a post Lord of the Rings construction. I'll say it more confidently now, JJ. Now that you looked that up for me, I appreciate that. Um, that was my suspicion, but I, I needed to look it up myself. But JJ has. Um, uh, I that the, the petty dwarves were a post Lord of the Rings reconstruction in order to explain why the now, like now you've got to go out of your way to explain why dwarves aren't heroes <laughs> because we're now used to them being heroes, right? Dwarves have been so thoroughly transformed. Gimli has so thoroughly transformed what dwarvishness means, what it means to be a dwarf that we now needed a reason, right? Um, if meme and his sons are, uh, like, you know, exiled and bitter and, uh, uh, and nasty. Um, there, there needs to be like a, a reason, an explanation for that. That's, that's like something that demands an explanation now before it was just dwarves. Am I right? Right. But now it's not like, that's not how dwarves are anymore in the post Lord of the Rings world. So he, uh, invents the separate, the separate story. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay, I don't want to go too far into it because it's it's really a Silmarillion question. Uh, but Bjorning is asking why add in a pre-dwarf iteration that is explicitly less noble than the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit dwarves, because um, he that's he he still wanted Meme and Meme's character. He didn't want he 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 didn't want Meme uh, to be he 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 
he didn't want to lose Meme. Meme's character. Like, ultimately, that's what it was about. Um, he wanted Meme to be the same uh, downtrodden, cowardly jerk. Um, uh, backstabbing, cowardly jerk that we see in the published Silmarillion. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, right. Um, anyway, okay. Um One last, we'll do the last little bit here in just a moment, because it only takes us a minute to do a sentence. There, are mist there the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget, Azanul Bazar, the Dimril Dale, which the elves call Nanduhirion. Once more we get the three things. Dimril Dale, that's Westron, right? So that's the English name. Nanduhirion is the elvish version, and Azanul Bazar is the dwarf version of the Dimril Dale. Um, uh, so, but the thing that I love about this, my favorite thing about this paragraph, is how completely um, inscrutable it is. Between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget. Uh, why? Uh, maybe we can put that together, right? I mean, there's that... We get the Azog story, and... Uh, but... If you know Tolkien, the story you're thinking of right now has not been written yet, right? That story's in Appendix A. And Appendix A is part of what delays the publication of The Return of the King, right? Uh, so, um, it's... It's not exactly the story of the burned dwarves, Josh. Good to see you again, Josh. Nice to meet you at Mythmoot. Um, uh, and all that stuff um, is, is um, that's, he, he's not written that yet, right? Even the writing the full story of how Thorin gets his name Oakenshield, right? All that, that's all Appendix A stuff, right? We don't have Appendix A yet. Um, all we have is The Hobbit, right? Um yeah, why? Let me get back to you on that. Yeah, exactly. Now, this I don't think this is one of those instances where Tolkien just drops this and is like, huh, I wonder why. I gotta figure that out, right? Uh, I think he kinda knew. Uh, there are references, of course, to the war between the goblins and the dwarves and the fight at the Mines of Moria and Azog the Goblin, right? All that stuff is there uh, in The Hobbit. Um, so we know enough to figure that's probably what he's talking about. Right. Um, so even without Appendix A, we have a sense of what he's discussing here, of what he's alluding to here. But it's pretty elusive. Right. I mean, it's it's not really clear. Um, but here is something that's clear. Um, here is something that's clear. And that I think is very significant. The tone of this. The deep shadowed valley, which we cannot forget. Um when Thorin mentions the mines of Moria um, and the, the war with the goblins in chapter one of The Hobbit, um, he does so in the context of bragging about the dwarves getting their own back against the goblins. Um, and remember, this is what Bjorn remembers. <clears throat> when uh, Thorin is introduced to Bjorn, uh, Bjorn looks with some favor on him because he... Um, has famously killed a lot of goblins in his day, 
at the war, um, at the Mines of Moria. So um, it's the victory of the dwarves. And remember, that's even the thing that gets referred to when Bolg shows up at the gate, right? When Gandalf comes with his warning that the goblins are attacking at the battle of soon-to-be five armies. Um, uh, he talks about, you know, um, the, the, you know, Azar, Bolg, whose, you know, father... Uh, I, I mean, there's... There, there are references to it, right? There are memories of it. But they're not memories of grief. Nowhere do we get that tone in The Hobbit. Again, we get boasting, bragging about how many goblins I've killed, right? Um, but um, uh, here, we get a totally different glimpse into what I think we can put together. Again, even just from Hobbit only, from previously published, previous to the, you know, 1954, um, even from just from previously published stuff, we can put together what Gimli's referring to. It's not a complete puzzle. Um, I mean, it's, 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 not an, it's not simply a riddle, right, that he's saying. Um, but um, the tone is remarkably different. The deep shadowed valley, which we cannot forget. Um, we're going to get a little bit more of this. Too. Yes, it's not just the battle. I know it's not just the battle. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, I think it's colored by the battle, though. We, we will get the significance of that with the mirror mirror and everything. And he's going to about to talk about that in another paragraph, which we shan't get to tonight. Um, but um, um, but I do think there are memories of the battle here uh, in his reference, which we cannot forget. Um, I mean, obviously, he can't forget any of this. Right. Um, he's plainly in no danger of forgetting the mountains of Moria. Um, one wouldn't have suspected he would be in very much more danger of forgetting the mirror mirror, uh, you know, either or Durn Stone. Um, so there's some. So it's a stra- It would be a strange thing to say in this context, um, which we cannot forget. Cannot forget makes it sound almost like he's. They're trying to, right? There's. That's why I cannot shake the sense of grief from that statement. Um, the deep shadowed valley, which we cannot forget. Parenthesis, and we've tried. Right. Almost. Right. Not quite. But all, you, you see, you see what I'm talking about there. Um, and um, uh, it, but I do agree with you, Musical, that it's um, that it's layered. Um, uh, there is it's this valley is unforgettable in multiple ways. Right. Um, but uh, but I think that we can hear um, uh, I think that we can hear some of the complexity of that. Um, it is not only reverence that he has for that valley. Um, if it were, yeah, it's, uh, it's burned into their memory as it were, Josh. Exactly. Exactly. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, anyway, yeah, no, so it's right, Ryan, it's not, um, it's not where Durin first awoke, but it's where, um, he like it's like the founding of it's the foundation story of Moria basically um but we'll um we'll get more um 
Uh, yeah, Juan, I agree. If he were only talking about Durin at Miramir, he might say something like that we won't forget, right? Or that we will never forget. Um, uh, yeah, I, I agree that the, the emphasis is complex there, right? There's something, um, there is both, they're holding this in memory, but they seem to be holding this in memory, not only in a reverential way, but in a, uh, in a, sort of negative way as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Ambrosius is asking, do the dwarves have a belief or sense that they can never reach their potential or greatest heights unless they return to Moria or their places of origin? Uh, well, we don't know that for sure. Um, but Gimli's uh, speech here certainly does show I was about to say the affection. That's true. Um, but of course, doesn't it go well beyond affection uh, that they hold for this, the reverence? Um, this is not just our ancestors had this really awesome piece of real estate and we would like it back, right? It's pretty clear, even just from these paragraphs, that the relationship between Gimli and the dwarves and Khazad-dum um, goes well beyond that. We don't get any kind of explicit expression of what you're saying there, Ambrosius. Um, but I, I, I think I agree with what Bjorning says. It's at least possible that they do. It certainly opens up that kind of thing. It invites us to imagine that kind of thing. Gimli is sharing a lot. He's not sharing everything, right? He's not sharing all of their the hopes and dreams of himself and the dwarves, right? Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, um, <laughs> and you can also, uh, perhaps kind of see why I slightly self-indulgently called this class Return to Moria, um, uh, which is the name of the new video game that's coming out probably next year. Um, uh, that I'm consulting on because I was thinking about it a lot uh, in uh, I was thinking about this passage a lot when I was when I've been working with them and I've been thinking about that a lot uh, as uh, we were thinking about this uh, uh, th in thinking about this passage uh, but um, anyway um, uh, yeah yeah because of course the premise of the game is that Gimli uh, himself is uh, in the fourth age uh, organizing, uh, pulling together uh, a uh, the, uh, the the return to Moria. So, um, <clears throat> anyway, it's um, it's fun stuff, fun stuff. Um, I can't. <laughs> sorry, I should have brought it up because I can't talk more about it. But uh, uh, but anyway, it's been on my head. Next calendar year, fiscal year, Valian year. Um, I hope before next Valiant year, JJ. But, um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, let's, um, let's move along before I get in trouble. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to stop there because we actually sort of finished a slide, which is fun. Um, 
Uh, let me say, so it's uh, field trip time. Before we move on to the field trip time, I'm not going to be here next week again, unfortunately. This summer, there's a lot going on this summer. I'm going to be traveling a lot for a lot of different things. Um, family travel, uh, moot travel, uh, other travel, all kinds of things. Um, so I'm going to be uh, not here. Family travel next week. Uh, next week's actually, in fact, a week from tonight uh, is my 25th wedding anniversary. So my wife and I, I'm taking my wife uh, away. We're going on a little honeymoon next week. So um, I won't be here next week for very fun reasons, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, but so I won't be here next week, but I will be back the week after that. So we will be back on the 19th um, and uh, we will continue looking at uh Gimli's words about Moria and Gandalf, of course, is going to spill the plan uh, for what they're actually planning to do. Kind of. Some. Mostly. Of it. Um, so we'll um, we'll talk about that in two weeks. In the meantime, let us uh, go do the... Uh, let's, let's do the field trip for those of you who can stick around with us. Good evening, Valori. How are you? I'm doing great. We had a great movement, didn't we? Oh, man, we did. That was so much fun. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was okay. awesome. We are where at... Uh, my milestone says no bottle. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's the nearest... Um, what, so we... Uh, I Let's see. Here we go. Okay. Um, yeah, no bottle is what I got to for, um, for that. I think we made it up to Tyfield, but there wasn't a milestone at Tyfield? Yes, that sounds about right. But I got a bit yeah. muddled because we did the whole tour on the on the bingo yeah exactly i'm kind of muddled with it too i think uh, some of our the rest of our yondershire tour here is going to be uh maybe a little quicker than other because we looked at a bunch of places already so um (laughs) we'll kind of do like a a review and survey um for those of you who missed it we did a little what ended up being a little mini marathon stream actually we streamed for like three hours on thursday night oh Um, i was fading by the end oh man oh man yeah that was um um uh yeah that was uh that was so that, that was a lot but we that was pay off at the end so that was good um i'm still inviting her yeah um everyone to the rage <laughs> oh right people. right yeah yeah we'll Sorry. get a lot of people today a lot of people today there are a lot so, of people today inter- interesting thing is um I, I was in the chat with uh was it chrono um, I was I was having a chat because uh, it, I found it interesting from a geological point of view the different colors attributed to the mountains, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. would indicate like a, a couple of things. And my first theory was is like are we were we looking at different layers of strata made of different mineral deposits that sort of thing. And then of course we started thinking of uh, uh, things like you know snow capped and uh, how the light would hit them and all these different things that would affect how a mountain looks. Right. From a right. Different, a different point of view. Yeah, and we already saw that with Karathras, right? That Karathras mm-hmm. presumably is that mountain that's sticking up like a tooth, uh, right, with the red glow of the sun on it. So we saw mm-hmm. the redness of red horn, um, looking not like a tooth, not like a horn, but a tooth, right? But yet that's presumably the red horn in question. Yeah, rotten tooth, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. but <clears throat> yeah, but like the red always makes me think it's got a lot of iron deposits in it. Maybe. Maybe it does. Yeah, maybe it does. And because uh, you would think that the, um, um, yeah, I, you know, red and silver, um, you know, might 
mean something, you know, different to the dwarves than mm-hmm. um, uh, merely the external colors or something like that. But, but maybe it's red because the light hits it at sunset or something. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, that was, yes, that was exactly. Exactly. Yep. No, and that's we certainly seems to be true of uh, of Karathras for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. Um, uh, which what direction are we going? Where have we been? We went down to Foxden Heath because then we visited um, down to uh, what's it called? Down here in the Shire. Where's the other? Oh, Little Delving. Right. Yeah, that's what I Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think <clears> we right. have a few more pubs to see, first off. We do have some more pubs to see. Um, so, Tyfield. Then, I, so we went to Tam Amothir is where we explored on the field trip. And we saw a nice elvish ruin, clearly party oh, yeah. house. We were mm-hmm. looking at the, we saw the breakout rooms there and everything. So, um, and we went up to Longobo. Right, we saw that as well. Let's um, go through Tyfield and then up to um, up towards Gamich and Ostlagaroth up there, and then we can pop over towards Longcleave maybe. So I don't, I doubt we get further than Gamich today. But Gamich, as I recall, Gamich from the uh, um, from the Mythmoot stream, I mostly just spent time trying to not run into trees. So let me, uh, <laughs> yes. let's, let's look around. And, and there fall again. off waterfalls. Oh, I have a picture of that. I got to post. That's right. Falling off waterfalls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Taking the scenic route in various places. Yeah. Right before you plummeted off of one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just it. That's just, yeah, I saw your bridges picture. It was very flattering. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll post that in, <laughs> I'll post that in the discord feed. Yeah. Um, Oh, so uh, fun fact, uh, my youngest turned six years old today. Really? Oh, my goodness. Which means we've been doing this stream for almost six years now. Yeah, I remember your youngest is a babe in arms at Mythmoot that one year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, little swaddle baby, fast asleep on that film film episode. Exactly, exactly. Oh, man. Six, really? Six, I know. Yeah. So it's like we're gonna have to teach your son to do the academic stuff, and I'm gonna have to teach my kids to be smart asses. Right, man. Yeah, I, I mean, as um, as as soon as like some of the you know children born at the beginning of this uh, show start like graduating from high school is when you know we'll know that we're old and halfway done. Uh, so there we go. Um, Speak for yourself. I plan to live forever. <laughs> okay, so that was Tyfield. We didn't look around Tyfield because we looked around that before. So let's let's head up to Gamage. That's where I want to go. I want to go to Gamage. All right. Um, okay. Yeah, so Aaron, this is uh, this is the Lord of the Rings Online for those of you who are unfamiliar with Lotro. Um, the Lord of the Rings Online is a very venerable MMO. Uh, it's been running for, golly, what is it, 13 years? 14 15, years now? 15. 15 years now? 15 Goodness. Years. Um, yeah. Which in That's MMO years is like 105. Yeah. Um, yes. So uh, it's a very old MMO. Well but it's preserved. <laughs> well preserved, yeah. It's still very delightful. Um, and uh, so very delightful and playable. Um, 
uh, uh, game uh, and just remains and continues to expand into uh, just I still think uh, um, probably the greatest single adaptation of Tolkien's work in any medium. I, I have been saying that for years and there are other really good adaptations out there. Peter Jackson did a reasonably good job. Uh, the One Ring um, role playing tabletop role playing system is a brilliant and gorgeous uh, adaptation. Um, oh, yeah. But as far as like a, um, um, you know, the extents, the extent and the detail, um, what they have put together in Lotro is pretty amazing. So okay, yeah. All right, immediate impression. Look at this. We've got. Look at the look at the the wooden houses. Look at these. Uh, no wonder with all the trees. These plank facades here, right? No red bricks yeah. here. Um, just this. Uh, are these are huge. Yeah, we've got enormous trees here. So this is a very, very old forest. There's some newer growth, but this is... Uh, oh, hang on. They're like Malorns. Yes, yes. Um, is there anywhere else... Is there anywhere else west of the Misty Mountains where we see trees of this size? I'm trying to remember wow. anywhere else. Like the Chetwood the doesn't have oh, Hang on, I'm going out now. To, the, even in the old forest, I mean, the old forest presumably has some very old trees, but I don't recall the old forest in the game having trees like this. Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. Um, okay. Yeah. Christoph, I'm I am I am following all of the chats as well as I can. There's a lot going on, but anyway, I'm so yeah. I'm looking at this uh, in the Breland. We've got the Chetwood. There's the old forest, obviously. Um, I say you, oak. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that Chetwood does have trees. This maybe maybe I'm not giving it credit, but that Chetwood um, was kind of shrimpy compared to this. It seems to me like I mean I just I don't remember anything like these i mean these are yeah. these are enormous um, these are like you know, these old forests on the east coast out here got trees like this but yeah few it's and far between yes yes exactly um i think that's why uh, it reminds me so much of the maryland wren fair right. nestled very much in a very old part right. of maryland forest yeah though there's not not many old forests like this in uh, on these even on the east coast um yeah. uh a couple of bunces here oh yeah. the curricles yep. look at the little curricles yeah uh yeah hidebound uh-huh probably willow on the inside some kind of green stick right with the little plank bench here yeah uh-huh yeah. Just, yeah, that's oh I like the bench actually. I haven't seen a curricle with a bench before, but it makes perfect <laughs> sense. Yeah, and you've got this one this one bench woven with reeds and then the other with a, a plank bench there. Yeah. Um that's that's the two seater. Right. So one of the things that I'm gathering now is we're looking at multiple towns uh mm -hmm. around uh around the Yondershire is it's much more eclectic than the Shire mm -hmm. and Therefore, and then the main shire, um, the architectural yeah. style remains consistent. They look like hobbit holes and smiles, yeah. uh, you know, that we see um, 
uh, in the Shire, but um, uh, this isn't grass on the roof. It's moss. These green, these bright green roofs. It's not grass. It's moss. Oh really? Yeah. Look, there's tile underneath it. Oh yeah, you're right. Would make sense right. with all this shade. Yeah, right. You can see right. You can see the tiling around the edges. Yeah, but that's cool. I, I I love how it mimics the grass. Right, right. So it is like a turf ceiling, but it's not a turf ceiling. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's not they're a all tile. I, I, I was well, going to say some of them have tile roofs, but you're right. All of them have tile roofs, in fact, yeah. um, because they're all um, completely under the canopy here. Um, there's no grass. Few places with bushes, but there's no. There's no, there are no grassy spots here. Um, mm -hmm. It's too thoroughly wooded for that. Um, I love the mist lingering on the surface of the water. Yeah, this is a, it's a gorgeous area. This area in the game, of course, is one of the newest, the yeah. newest still area it's, in the game. It's very scenic. I like. I want to. I, I want to spend time here. I like. I want to go on vacation here. This is like a house down on and on. on you know, one of the Great Lakes. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's very cool. And um, um, it's, um, uh, this is the um, ancestral home of the Gamgees, right? Mm -hmm. This is where the Gamgees come from. Um, uh, from up in this direction, we know, you know, Tyfield, of course, is, what Sam refers to as to, you know, where his, uh, uncle Andy had a rope walk. Um, so we know that, which is interesting because it does it, that this, and thinking about this in context now, um, the context that they're building in the game, at least suggests that, um, connects Sam and the Gamgees to this sort of, uh, um, I don't know, sort of new blood, right? Uh, among mm -hmm. the, among the hobbits, love the flowers growing in barrels. Mm -hmm. That's that's cute. These are wooden shingles, of course. Right. Everything here is made of wood. Yeah, yeah. It is an extremely wooden town, but it does suggest that the different towns that we've seen, which have been largely internally consistent, the red brick and no bottle. Um, the stone in Tyfield, um, mm -hmm. and now the wood in Gamage is very um, that it's 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 very connect very much connected with the the local um, the local surroundings, right? Like they're they're really using the local resources. Um, they use what you have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rather than just sort of saying we're gonna we're gonna build the way we build, no matter what. Again, the style is the same, but the um, the overall effect is really quite different. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Exactly, as Tomas says, it's all contextual architecture. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh man, it's getting late. All right, I was going to go up to Ostlagaroth, but perhaps we shouldn't. Is there a is there a milestone here in town? Uh, I don't know. Let's see. I know we... Probably I be found, close I to found, the lake. I found the stable master. 
yeah. you can find. Uh, oh, wait, and yeah, we should go and look in the inn. Yeah, we'll go inside and look at the inn. Here's the the um the brimful, oh, yeah, the brimful quiver. Yeah, brimful which quiver, I I, which of of course yeah. is a is explicitly a reference to you know the um, Hobbit archers. The hob- yeah, the Hobbit archers that the right that went to the battle in uh, at Fornost. Yeah. Fornost. Uh, yeah, but. Um, so I just check it over here to make sure there was no milestone that we forgot. I'll come back to the end in a second. Well, here's a stable master. I didn't might be near see him. one. Me neither. Yeah, it's a stable master, but I don't think we got a milestone. Nope. Very few milestones around here. Yeah. Is, is Nobile the only one hologram that it's the only one we found? Anyway, maybe we can uh, we can stable master it back up here to Gamage next time yeah. from Nobottle. Anyway, okay, um, let's go into the Brimful Quiver and see if uh, the Gamage pub scene is just as rollicking as it is in Tie Field and No Bottle. <laughs> oh, yeah, the standing room only crowds and the dancers and the live yeah. music and all that. Let's see. That was, uh... it, oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Look at this. Holy cow. Goodness. So, yeah. You must have good beer in these places. Yeah, boy, they know how to, they know how to live in the Yondershire for sure. Yeah, this makes the the Hobbit pubs look very reserved and genteel. Yeah, yeah. Look at the antlers everywhere. I guess they're still hunting, huh? Yeah, exactly. And again, we got the the the, the quivers, right? So we know that hobbits yeah. can and do hunt. Um, are excellent with bows and other and use antlers in all of their decorating. <laughs> Apparently, around here they sure do. Um, which again, like you know, forest thing. That's uh, you know a local color issue here. Um, it looks a little. Yeah, I, I suppose a deer would be like a kaiju running through here, wouldn't it? You know, the deer head doesn't look as like imposing as I might have expected it to. But maybe I guess it's um, size wise. That is like sort of proportional to the, but I guess it's probably just because, uh, as in most uh, in-game indoor areas, the um, head clearance is a little bit more generous than it probably would be in an authentically built Hobbit hole. Um, yeah. If uh, the entire yeah, room were proportioned down to uh, looking up at those nostrils, is going to be pretty intimidating. Exactly right, uh, and even if the ceiling were like four or even five feet off the ground, right, um, yeah. then uh, the deer head would look uh, a little bit more imposing. But of course, yeah. we're we've got like ten foot ceilings here in this. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in this yeah, deer are nothing to deer would be a valid concern to the Hobbit folk. I, I live out here in in the country where a common cause for calling into school late is that there are two bucks fighting on the lawn. <laughs> right. right. Not to be trifled with. No, that is certainly not to be trifled with. Not yeah. the cute little fuzzy Bambi there, dear. It, no, does, doesn't it seem to you that the people here in Gamage are a little bit more sedate? Um, uh, in uh, Field, there was a not con- constant party. Now, there's no musicians. I don't yeah. see anybody singing or playing. Uh, there's very little dancing. There's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of lounging. You know, there's a, it seems congenial enough. I'm not saying oh, that, yeah. 
uh, and they're obviously all here. Um, for this young but... lass is leaning menacingly against the wall of antlers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it seems um, seems a little yeah. bit um, a little bit more sedate up here. Yeah, it, it looks like they've had a, a had a long arduous day of real toil. Yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder. I mean, the wooden houses as opposed to brick do give the impression of like uh, more financially humble. Right. Um, but that yeah. might not necessarily be. Um, but yeah, a little bit more working class, perhaps in some ways. Yeah. Um, Tyfield was certainly more, um, more upscale. Yeah. 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 It seemed to point. be. It seemed mm-hmm. to be. And certainly upbeat as well. Yeah. It's like Tyfield was like, when Tyfield was like Cambridge at lunchtime. And this is like Cambridge, like at 6 p.m. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, um, uh, it's tea time still. Very. Uh, I mean, again, everybody's here. Everybody's here. They don't seem to be mad. You know, they're not. Uh, but they're like sitting, having serious conversations around their food and beer and maybe telling stories. And Well, stock uh, larder. Yeah. Nice larder here. Mm-hmm. Got, oh, he's, he's, he's peeling potatoes. Okay. I, was, I didn't see what that guy was doing. There Ooh, it's first, a big but. box full of ham. <laughs> Box full of hands. And there you go. Gotta love that. Pea soup. Got, got some carrots. Got some... I don't know what's in the bucket. I'm hoping that's a cleaning solution. Yeah, maybe. I, I think Mushy maybe. peas. <laughs> it's mushy mushy peas. peas, yeah. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Um, But yeah, man. Wow. Okay. So the pub scene continues to hold true. We'll see um, about, let's see, Long Cleave is the last town, I think that we mm-hmm. have uh, that we haven't explored. So we'll see what the pub in Long Cleave is like, but yeah. um, but I have high hopes at this point. And then we'll look uh, in a little bit more detail at a couple more of the ruins. Um, and then we can uh, move on from there. Maybe it'll be time to actually head back to Karathras in Eregion yep. uh, after that as we're beginning to approach I th- Karathras. I think this one little fellow's had a bit much to drink, though. He's talking to the stuffed bear. <laughs> Out there? Yeah. Oh, this guy, yeah. 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 He's, uh, he's definitely had a few. <laughs> yeah, I think probably so. Whoa, movie Aristotle says he counts 79 hobbits in the end. That 79? Is, that is a lot of population right there. And you win the jar of jelly beans on that one. Yeah, that is impressive. That is impressive. Um, yeah, cool. All right, awesome. Well, I'm going to let people go. It's getting late. Um, but, um, Thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. I, as I say, I'll be away next week, but I will be back the week after, and we will. Uh, um, yeah, happy maybe we'll head over towards Long Cleave first, and then do the whole the full ruins tour uh, thereafter. Excellent. That might be a better way to do it. But all right, awesome. Thanks everybody for joining us, and we will see you guys in a couple weeks. Bye now. Bye.